maybe, just maybe, all of this has led to a place where I am stable emotionally. I am okay with talking about everything as it relates to my journey. And why not use that as a backbone of strength to give back and help others? Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and today my guest is Marnie. She grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, in a transracial family that lived in a predominantly white community. But everywhere they went, they were stared at. The attention their family received was a constant reminder of their racial diversity. But her father seemed to have wise and crafty ways to turn the tables to make his own children feel more comfortable. Still, Marnie always wanted to find her biological family. So on her 21st birthday, that's exactly what she began to do. Initially, she thought things with her biological mother were going to be great. But it turned out that her biological father was the one that she truly had a connection with. I asked Marnie to tell me what life was like as an adoptee in her family and in her community. Marnie recalls her childhood as one challenged by racial identity. Her family was racially diverse, and in Madison, Wisconsin in the 1970s, the kind of racial diversity and integration that her family showed was far from the norm, and their family stood out in their community. We had a, a, a rainbow coalition, if you will, of a family in the early 70s in Madison, Wisconsin, which wasn't exactly popular. Mm-hmm. And although my parents did, I think, everything they could to normalize something that really was not normal by society's standards, it was still rough because we would go places and people's jaws would drop. My family is um, pretty into outdoor sporting, um, for example, camping, canoeing. And in Wisconsin, there's lovely lakes and and forests and such to hike through in the northern part of the state. And in the northern part of the state, there's no diversity of any kind. And so because that's something that our family did recreationally, we spent a lot of time in northern Wisconsin in the summers and such. And there's one particular story that I remember when we went into a restaurant, northern Wisconsin, and literally walked in and all of the forks just dropped on the plates and everyone stared at us and it was very uncomfortable. I was maybe five years old and I just kept looking at my dad to see how he was responding because it, it was quite frankly a little scary. And we sat down, my dad reassured us it was fine and everyone just kept staring. And my dad said, look at their shoes, just stare at people's shoes. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, if dad says so, we're going to stare at shoes. So we're all staring at at people's shoes. And one by one, people start kind of out of the corner of their own eyes, looking down at their feet. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of started snickering. And, and, And my father never, ever said anything about that incident ever again. And it was years later that I realized the brilliance of my father because it was as silly for them to be looking at us is as silly as it was for us to look at their shoes. Mm-hmm. And so I, I use that as an illustrative story because it's an example of how my parents very pragmatically took on the world because they decided to take on a, a colorful family. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. And, and that is really brilliant right in the moment saying, you know what, if they want to stare at us, we'll stare back at them and uh, we'll see who feels sillier. 
because the honest truth is you guys are in the world. You can't change it. And, and their, you know, lack of exposure to people of color shouldn't mean that you guys should feel uncomfortable. That's that was pretty brilliant. Their family structure was really complicated. Amidst the adoptions, there was also divorce and remarriage, adding step siblings to the mix. Siblings will always have some kind of rivalry with one another, but Marnie experienced racism even within the sibling structure. One of my older sisters, who's also biracial black-white, but she is much darker complected than I am, she taunted me for my entire childhood and, and would oftentimes make comments about the fact that I was so fair complected and make up rhymes and stories and, and jingles about how fair complected I was, like to the point where I would blend into snow. And it's interesting because I didn't really get that racism, like the black on black hate race stuff until mm -hmm. much later in life when I went to Howard University. And it was, I think that it really came out of the fact that when we would go places as a whole unit, we were obviously different. Mm -hmm. But if I went someplace with my parents, independent of my black siblings, I was treated completely differently. Mm -hmm. And my sister knew that. And she saw that mm -hmm. from afar. And, you know, like going into restaurants when we were teenagers and my older brother and sister who were darker complected, the hostess not even recognizing that they're with us and wanting to seat them separately as if they're a couple. Mm -hmm. And wow. so my sister just resented me mm -hmm. so much because I was the other black kid, but yet I got treated differently. Mm -hmm. Wow. And then honestly, I just, I'd have to own and admit that I, I used that to my advantage. In what because way? Because I, well, I used it in the advantage of being able to fit in socially growing mm -hmm. up mm -hmm. because sometimes I just got really sick of the fact that we always had questions and stares and everywhere we went, it was always, you know, why is your hair like that? Or is, how can that be your sister? That's not really your brother. And if I could escape being around the different looking family structure, then I definitely would use it for my advantage to hang out with different kinds of peer groups. Yeah. There's like a, all there's white. A, yeah. There's an element of all of us that just wants to fit in. And to the extent that you can escape sort of being ostracized for especially something that's visual to other people and just be and feel normal for a while. I could certainly understand why you would want to, you know, exercise a little escapism and, and try to get away from that. So you were probably always in a position of feeling both a, what I assume is a black and a white side, and probably trying to identify with two communities, albeit challenged to be identified in the black community in, you know, a predominantly white society. It must have been really hard for you to make that that navigation back and forth between, you know, two separate cultures while living in a house that had two separate cultures as well. It was almost impossible to find any black identity mm -hmm. within my upbringing. And it's interesting because as much as I would try to escape it, to fit in into my very white community, mm. I then chose to go to Howard University because when I visited Howard at, at the age of 18, when I was a senior in high school, I was absolutely bewildered by the fact that there were there was like an entire university of people just like me. Mm -hmm. I never even knew that that existed. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I had to go to Howard in order to have an opportunity to fully submerge myself in a black culture for four years. Okay. It was five years um, <laughs> to, to be able to get in touch with my black side. Cause I knew if I didn't take the opportunity, then that opportunity would not present itself again in my life. And did the racial struggle in your life sort of propel you? Was that one of the propellants for wanting to find your biological family? It was, 
It absolutely was. Um, and also I, there was, there were a lot of challenges with my siblings as well. I mean, like I, one of my brothers, um, he spent most of his adult life in and out of prison, um, because he was so challenged being black, being adopted by a white family in Wisconsin, just not fitting in, just always getting into trouble. I mean, he had a lot of psychological damage prior to being adopted. And my sister had a tremendous amount of, of psychological problems. She was actually removed from our home in seventh grade and, and bounced in and out of group homes because my mom couldn't control her behavior anymore. This is the sister that was challenging your racial identity. Yes. And I just really felt like, wow, you know, this is a really dysfunctional household. And I want to find my real family because I'm sure they're completely perfect. I wondered, with all of the racial division in their home, how did Marnie's parents make her feel comfortable as an adoptee? Her mother made sure she never felt like her adoption was an alternative to anything else. And their family tried to connect with other families like themselves. Well, I think there's two things. One is, as, as any natural child's curiosity would, would prompt them to, I would often ask, why did you adopt kids instead of having your own? Mm -hmm. And my mother would always say, well, why would I have biological children when I have you? And I'd be like, oh, that's not the right answer. <laughs> like, I want to know, like, why did you really do this? But she would never get into that with me. And I think that that's interesting because she just wanted to take that out of the equation of, you know, you were like the second choice or the backup plan mm -hmm. or something. Right. Which An is excuse. what I think. Right. But then the other thing is my, my parents were part of something called the Wisconsin Open Door Society. And, and that was a, I mean, that it no longer exists, but they were one of a few chapters around the country um, of a national chapter called the Open Door Society. And it was, it's all uh, white parents who adopted either across racial lines or children with physical or um, cognitive challenges. And so we would get together with, say, 50 or 60 other families that look like ours about four times a year for mm -hmm. the weekend. We'd, we'd go on camping retreats, things like that. That in some ways normalized our being adopted because at least we had the visual a couple times a year of other people like us. I'm just so grateful that they got themselves involved in this organization. And I do have really profound um, experiences with that group. And, and I think absent of that, I can't imagine how twisted I may have become. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like they were able to locate and really connect with a community that was something that you all could identify with. Tell me a little bit about how you finally reached a moment where you decided that you were going to seek out your biological relatives. How did that go? Well, I always wanted to. Since I had conscious thought, I was heck bent on I'm finding my biological family. And so I then learned I was adopted through the state of Wisconsin. And the state law was such that you could not search for your parents until you were the age of 21. So I think on my 21st birthday, I filled out the application and sent it in. And then they said to me that it's about a two year wait to search because they're just they're understaffed and underfunded in that particular office. So I waited the two years and almost two years to the date I got a call and they said, OK, we're ready to start your search. And it was going to be one hundred dollars an hour to do the search. So I at the time was um, a senior at Howard University. So, you know, one hundred dollars was like a million dollars. But I went through the coat pockets and cushions on the sofa and found, you know, one hundred dollars, sent it off. And then it took two hours of search. And then they called me and they said, okay, we've got your mother's name. Because I only searched for the for my mother at, at first because it was $100 an hour per search. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I thought, well, if I can find the mother, then hopefully she can tie me to the father. So in Wisconsin, the child always has their right to privacy. And so what happens is the state then goes to the records. They find her. They, they locate her. They contacted her, asked her permission to give her contact information to me, um, which she granted. And then it still lies on the child. So if I had received that information and still decided, oh, no, I'm, I'm chickening out. I don't want to find her. I would always be protected. So then the onus is on me to make that call to her. So the state representative tells Marnie that her biological mother has visited their office and she's excited to meet Marnie. Marnie was a senior in college living with several other girls when she got the news. And we all gathered in the living room and I said, oh, my gosh, you know, they found my mom. What should I do, write her or call her? And they're like, call her. So right then and there, I called her. A little girl answered the phone. And I said, hello, can I speak with Carolyn Tyler? And the little girl said, mom, phone. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I've got a little sister who's oh, like little, little. That's um, so cute. Yeah. So then she got on the phone and I said, hi, Carolyn, this is Marnie. And she said, Oh, I've been expecting your call. My baby Robin, my baby Robin. And I said, because I knew that she'd named me Robin when I was born. And I said, well, yes, but my parents named me Marnie. So I'm no longer Robin. Then we talked for a long time. We talked for a few hours. And How then, was the connection? Um, well, it, you know, it's interesting because in the beginning, it was really exciting. We, we seemed to have a lot in common. She was very high energy, absolute open book, told me everything you know shared that she you know she'd been waiting for this call for the last 23 years and that this was just the crown jewel of of her life to be able to finally connect me and she said she just prayed every day that i would come back to her after she graduated from howard university marnie returned to wisconsin to meet her mother and her younger siblings her adopted parents even got the chance to have lunch with her mother during a lovely afternoon visit her mother arranged for what Marnie called a wonderful, wonderful reception. And things were going great at first. So as time went on, things got a little bit peculiar with, with my relationship with her. And the, the highlights of that are when I became pregnant with my first son. And she, I, I should back up and say that I had several miscarriages before a pregnancy that went to full term. And I shared that with her because we spoke a lot. She was, we became close mm -hmm. at over, this was now a two year period of time that we became very close. So at the, my son was born in February that Christmas before I got a Christmas card from her with a picture of a baby on it, dressed up in an angel costume. And it just said, um, like just what you always wanted. Merry Christmas. Okay, fine. I thought nothing of it. I thought because she knew I was pregnant. I was toward the end of the pregnancy. You know, we're thinking it's a green light this time. And yeah, I always wanted a baby. So yay. She calls me a few days later and said, did you get my card? And I said, yes. And she said, oh, well, well, what do you think about your baby brother? I about dropped the phone. I, I said that, that you, you had a baby? And she said, yes. So we were pregnant at the same time. She never tells me this. She's, you know, 30 years older than I am. And she said, yeah, well, I know you always wanted a full biological sibling. Now you have one. And I said, wait, you, you're with my father? And she said, no, but, but I met a man who looks a lot like how your father looked when we were together. Whoa. And I thought, um, okay, that doesn't make this child my biological sibling. Oh, and by the way, I never said that I wanted a biological sibling. As I said earlier, I've had enough siblings in my life. That's one thing I don't need more of. 
She thought she thought, was gifting you another another sibling? Yeah. And I thought, okay, this is terribly strange. So I, I'm, I'm sorry. Let me pause you for yeah, a second. Did you <laughs> yeah. did you tr- did you get the impression that she did this for you? Yes, absolutely. She went out and got pregnant in order to give you another biological, or at least half biological, sibling. Her words were that she found a man who looked a lot like my father looked when they were together, and the man that impregnated her also was significantly younger. So he was about he was you know in his twenties. And your and, mother's 20 years older than you. Whoa. Thank you. Exactly. So I just thought, okay, this is really, really weird. There's three things I'm going to say about her, and then you can see that this just ended up to be a disaster. But the day that I came home from the hospital with my son, I got a call from my biological mother's first husband. And I thought, okay, that's kind of a leap and strange of someone to call and congratulate me. But Okay. I remember I'd met him one time and he didn't even know that I'd had a baby. That wasn't the reason for his call. He called me to say that he thinks that he's my father. And I thought, okay, well, hold on a minute. I've always been told that my father is a black Creole man from Louisiana and fits like all these other demographics. And now in this man's Puerto Rican. And I said, so now you're telling me that you're my father. So all along, I'm not, not even black. I'm Puerto Rican. So, and now I've just had a baby and I don't even know what it is. Whoa. Okay. And so I, I just, I thought, oh my God, this is crazy. Like I've, I'm obviously a homo- hormonal wreck. I just had a baby and right. I'm freaking out because my whole life I thought I was black. I went to Howard for crying out loud to try to get in touch with my blackness. And now I'm Puerto Rican. This is just too much. <laughs> I'm like, I cannot even deal with it. So I like, I know. So then I call so her. And I'm like, do you know that your ex-husband just called me and saying that he's my father? And she went on this long tirade and and said, oh, no, he's just trying to get back at me because, you know, he knows that you're the one thing that, you know, means so much. And, and he's trying to drive a wedge. And I said, Carolyn, I don't know what your deal is, what your problems are with your exes, et cetera. I have a new child. I just started a family. Do not contact me ever again. I'm done with you. Wow. Done. And yeah, she had we, brought nothing but drama, it sounds like. Yeah, there's a little bit more, though. Yeah, so you said you were going to say three things about her. Yep. So I did not have any communication with her for three years. And then she called and said that she found my father. And I said, which one? And she said, no, 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 I, I, I really found your father. And I said, fine, give me his name and number. She played a bunch of games. Finally, she said, well, I'll send you a photo of him. Okay. Marnie saw a man that looked like he could be her father. She also noticed some identifying information in that photo, and since her mother had told Marnie what state her biological father was living in, Marnie had an idea what she could do next. He really looked a lot like he could be my father. On his shirt, it said Clayton Holmes, and I knew that at the time he was living in Lafayette, Louisiana, because she told me so. So I called 411 for Lafayette, Louisiana, called the, the Clayton Holmes. Hi, can I speak to Robert? Speaking. I said, oh, my goodness. I said, hi, um, this is a little bit out of the blue, but I think I'm your daughter. <laughs> what? You just came out with it? Sure. Oh, my gosh. After all that drama she put me through, I'm like, yeah, well, we'll see. And he said, um, okay. And I said, look, I'm not trying to cause any trouble in your life. You know, I, I, do you know Carolyn? Yes. And he said, excuse me, I'm sorry. Carolyn has been in touch with me, but she told me that you were a boy. 
I said, no, I, I, I can very much assure you I am a woman and I've always been female. <laughs> so, no, that was a lie. I said, I don't know how much contact you've had with her, but I think she's a little off. And I don't know why she would tell you that, but I'm very much a woman. So anyway, then I went on to say, well, you know, I just wanted you to know I was adopted by a, a good family and I had a good life and, you know, there's no real drama to share. And he said, well, well, well when were you adopted? And I said, when I was six weeks. And he said, Carolyn told me she raised you. I said, no, I just met her three years ago. Wow. Needless to say, I don't have a relationship with my biological mother, but I have a wonderful relationship with my father. That's amazing. So this was the guy. This was the guy. Wow. He corroborated this, yep. all kinds of sort of backstory detail kinds of things. Did you do a DNA test? Like, how do you know? Well, we did do a DNA test. Mm -hmm. um, not that we needed it because we look so similar. I'm the absolute female version of him. Our mannerisms are the same. Like, it's it's creepy how much I look like him. Is but we did right? do a DNA test. Um, I have three half siblings. One of them, she and I look like we're twins. They're, they're a great addition to my family. That's amazing. Marnie says she only had a little bit of a relationship with her maternal half-siblings. She tried to get some family medical history to help one of her own sons, so Marnie had a conversation with one of her brothers. He told her that he was as shocked as she was to learn that their mother had had a baby and that her erratic behavior, likely due to some undiagnosed mental illness, also prevents his family from having a relationship with their mother. You know, I just said, Ian, tell me what is going on with her. I mean, she just seems nuts. And he's like, yeah, she is. I mean, she's probably got some schizophrenia, bipolar stuff going on. Mm -hmm. You know, I said, tell me about the, the baby that she had. I mean, and he said, oh, you think you were shocked? I didn't even know that she was pregnant because her weight fluctuates so much. He, he said that he got a call to pick her up at the hospital. He said, are you OK? She said, I'm fine. Just pick me up. She they roll her out in a wheelchair with a baby in her arms. And she's like, yeah, I'd meet your new brother. And he's like, what? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay. You know, and then the wife at that point chimed in and she's like, oh, yeah, like she can't really be part of our life. She's, she's really unpredictable. The kids are getting older. You know, they would expect and recognize that if grandma's, come, you know, invited to my birthday party, she'll come and then she won't. Or she'll be very bizarre when she's there to the point where it makes everyone uncomfortable. So they don't really have a relationship with her and they all live in Milwaukee. Yeah. I can really relate to that. My my adopted mother is actually the one who suffers from mental illness right now. And, you know, she lives in a completely alternate reality from the one that you and I live in. And it can be really challenging to um, see this woman who was an amazing mother growing up for me just live in this reality that doesn't coincide with what you and I know and I just have to try to respect her for who she was to me because the woman she is now is totally different. So it must have been really hard for you. You, I assume you had some, you know, expectations and feelings about wanting to meet this woman and for it to start off so positively and turn uh, so bizarre it must have been really hard for you. It was but, terribly hard. I asked Marnie how she shared her search for her biological parents with her adopted parents. She reminded me that she had always wanted to search. And her parents absolutely knew that she would one day. But that doesn't mean that no one's feelings were hurt during the process. Well, I always told them that I was going to find them. So it, it should not have come to any, you know, as, as a surprise to any of them. I mean, like I said, since I could talk, I was talking about finding them. Mm -hmm. I used to make up lots of stories about who they were and, and 
fantasize about who they were and they were going to be so wonderful and they'd just smile and nod. So when the day came, my mother was very, very hurt and upset. My father was very supportive though. And it really hurt me that my adoptive mother was so upset by it because A, I told her all along I was going to find them and B, it wasn't ever to replace her. It was a natural curiosity that is my right to be able to search and find out where I came from. And I don't think there's anything unnatural about someone being curious and wanting to know. And so my mother was very difficult about it. And it, it didn't make the process easier or more comfortable in, in a process that's already has a lot of emotion associated with it. Yeah. And she added to a lot of anxiety that I really didn't appreciate. And I want to just push on that for a quick second, because the way you expressed it to me a moment ago, and I'm not sure if you intended it this way, but you actually sounded like there was a little bit of when I find them, they're going to be better than you in your voice, the way you just said it. And I don't know if you intended that, but it came out when you just said it, like when I find them, they're going to be so awesome. And I could see how, if you said that as the, when you were younger, that they could start to feel hurt by that when it finally happened. Did that? Did you say that accurately? Oh yeah. I mean, my my household was upside down. I mean, my siblings were crazy in in and out of the house. My parents divorced. My my mother, you know, she she remarried a, a lovely man, but prior to her getting remarried, she was putting herself through law school, dealing with difficult children. There was a, a chunk of my childhood that was a really really hard time. I see. My father moved away to New York, and I, I, I just adore my father. When, when he moved to New York, it was very, very painful. My mother and father have not spoken since they divorced in 1979. That was always a, a contentious thing. And so absolutely, I was like, I'm out of here. This is nuts. I see. And it may have been hurtful to them, but at the same time, there was a lot of stuff that was pretty unstable in my household I for see. a long period of time. And I was desperate to find an, an escape valve. This was a long, challenging road for Marnie, and she learned a lot along the way. I asked her how she was, knowing that mental illness is hereditary, and what she's learned about herself. So the first part, do I worry about mental illness or physical illness, etc.? No, because I feel like if it's going to happen, it's going to happen whether I know it runs in my family or not. Because after all, it's already happened with my son being diagnosed with something called Crohn's disease, mm -hmm. which is a hereditary um, autoimmune disease. And so who gave it to him and what genetic strand doesn't matter. He's got it and we have to deal with it. But where I really overall am with it now is I've been able, I run my own company and we, among many things, provide social services in the, in Washington, DC. And I have been able to take my personal life journey with adoption and actually turn it into a business where I'm now supporting, um, foster youth. So one of the things that we do is we provide tutors for the foster youth of the district. And we also, um, we hire, we've got about 55 employees and we hire and train people with a deliberate system of strategies to specifically target um, our understanding of working with youth who have faced various levels of trauma. And then I also serve as an advisor to the Congressional Caucus on Foster Youth. So the experiences that we're, um, that I've, I've had with the business as well as my personal experience, I've been able to share those stories with members of Cong Congress on a monthly basis in an effort for them to inform different legislative practices as it relates to foster youth and adoptees. And then, of course, you know, being a board member of the Gift of Adoption Fund is also a way that I've been able to take these experiences and give back in, in, in that way, a more philanthropic way. 
but it's I, I didn't necessarily go out and seek these contract opportunities or seek being a board member on Gift of Adoption Fund, but it kind of just fell into my space. And I thought, wow, this is not an accident. And maybe, just maybe, all of this has led to a place where I am stable emotionally. I am okay with talking about everything as it relates to my journey. And why not use that as a backbone of strength to give back and help others? That's an amazing stance to be able to take at the end because, you know, this could have gone a different direction. You could have crumbled under the notion that your mother potentially is mentally ill and, you know, these all these sort of lies or, you know, misdirections could have really been uh, traumatic for you. So it's great that you were able to turn it into something positive. I'm, I'm really impressed with that. I guess I'll just ask, what would you have done differently in your journey or what do you wish might have been different? I don't know that I have a wish of something that was different. I will say that, you know, I'm still on this journey and I'm not done yet with being able to take my story and and spin it into something positive for others. And there's another kind of side to my childhood that I haven't yet spoken of. And then that is as it relates to my adoptive family. On my father's side, my grandfather was the, the U.S. Secretary of Education under Eisenhower. And prior to that, he was the general counsel for the Pillsbury Company in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And so I've got a lot of family ties to Minneapolis as well as presidential politics in Washington. And so, and so there's there's offshoots of that strand of my adoptive family that have done some really impressive things. Mm-hmm. And I also got that, that eye into wealth. I got that eye into power and being seated at the table be it not my own mom and dad's family table, but going to family functions, seeing this whole other side of like deep, deep pockets and deep, deep power was also this other part that made up who I am. And I always felt intrinsically responsible to do something with not only my very humble beginnings of being like a throwaway child to the welfare department of Wisconsin, to them being thrust into this family that, yeah, we have our own in our house dynamics that were dysfunctional with these siblings and this experiment my parents tried and it didn't go, I think, the way they wanted. But then this other side of, but my family, I can't deny, is also like pretty powerful people. Mm -hmm. So what can I do to bring all of this together? And like my cousins, they've done like really big stuff, Mm -hmm. but none of them have ever taken all of our experiences and put it back into social service work. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like maybe that is my role in this because I'm the one that came out of social services. Mm -hmm. And so I really feel like I am the carrier of the torch of a lot of things that my grandfather did. And so there's that whole piece of my history that is so important to me. And so that to me is why I don't feel like my, this journey is done. I feel like I'm just getting started. Mm Mm-hmm. And being able to do some, you know, I, I have big, big hopes and dreams of of doing big stuff with, with helping people that have had a similar walk of life as mine. That's really amazing. And to be able to recognize what ends up being a project and a trajectory of passion for you, which it may not be for them, but this is how you came into this world through social services, through adoption, through sort of, you know, the hands of others taking on uh, a child who needed love and support. It, it translates into your own passion to help other people. And it, 
I could see how you would want to really sort of coalesce the resources of your family, the influence of your family, the experiences that you've had to be impactful in some of the ways that it sounds like you're trying to do in D.C. So I congratulate you for recognizing that you have an opportunity to do something amazing that's going to help, you know, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of kids um, by by really sort of digging deep and trying to provide services. So uh, props and congratulations for really figuring out a, a niche and a direction that can be beneficial to all based on your own experiences. Thank you. And of course. Well, this has been amazing. I was really excited to hear your story. And, you know, I was I was listening intently as you shared it during the Gift of Adoption Fund event that you hosted here in D.C. So I was glad to finally get the full details from you. So thank you for taking time, Marnie. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Of course. Take care. I'll see you soon. Hey, it's me. Marnie recalls her childhood as one challenged by racial identity. As she grew up, her community was still trying to get used to the idea of transracial families. She experienced racial tension within her own family with one of her other siblings, and her own biracial heritage seemed to compound her internal desire to truly identify with her own biological family. Her story really exemplifies that you just never know what you're going to get when you start to search. Marnie initially thought she was going to have an excellent connection with her biological mother, only to find out that mental illness was blocking a true connection. Fortunately, she was able to get information about her biological father to make an even deeper connection with him. I really liked that Marnie said that she was still on this journey, and she's trying to turn her experiences as an adoptee into something where she can be influential for others in foster care and adoption nationwide. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you'll find something in Marnie's journey that inspires you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn, who am I, really? If you would like to share your story of locating and connecting to your biological family, visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share. You can also find the show on Facebook or follow me on Twitter at WAI Really. Really.